Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. Today we have David Harris. David is the Chief Executive Officer of Prosperident, the world's largest firm investigating financial crimes committed against dentists. David is a licensed private investigator, a forensic certified public accountant, and a certified fraud examiner. He is the author of the book, Dental Embezzlement, Embezzlement, The Art of Theft and the Science of Control, and over 30 articles in dental publications. In addition to being a prolific author, David is a frequent presenter at regional, national, international dental conferences. David, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Ross. Well, I have heard stories about front office staff embezzling money from dentists, but I did not know there was an industry for someone like you to help dentists uh, dentists with this problem. So tell us a little bit about the, the stats of embezzlement in the dental industry. Absolutely. Um, and I'll start maybe with the most depressing one first. There is about a 70% chance that at some point in their career, a dentist will be embezzled. Um, well, that's, sometimes not, that's, not, that's not very exciting. Yeah, it's not very exciting. Um, the, the point I want to make, though, is that this is a mainstream problem, not something that just touches a, you know, a small cohort of dentists somewhere. And it's, it's tempting, Ross, when you see a dentist who was embezzled to say, oh, well, you know, he or she was kind of asleep at the switch. And... Um, you know, negligent in running their practice, and that's why they got stolen from. And it, it's much broader than that. And embezzlement touches dentists who I think are pretty good operators, and it also certainly hits those who maybe are a bit neglectful. So, seventy percent of dentists, and there's two hundred two thousand currently, but on the latest stats I saw, will have embezzlement in their practice during their career. How many? How often does it happen on an annual basis? Well, if you if you work the numbers backward, it comes out to about eight to ten thousand dentists in the United States and Canada will be embezzled every year. So that's roughly five percent. Yeah, that is. So, uh, so it's obviously a, a big problem. And you told me earlier you've seen cases as big as two million dollars. We have a part of our website called the Hall of Shame, and that's where we profile embezzlers. And there are I don't know seven hundred or so of them included in that group are the, are the elite members who are called the million dollar club. And uh, there's a fair number of people who belong to the million dollar club. I mean, how long does it take to get to embezzle a million dollars? Is that done over a period of years? Can it be done in one year? What, what happens? I've never seen that in one year. Um, embezzlement is typically more like a leaky pipe, you know, a leaky faucet than a, a burst pipe. In other words, it's kind of uh, done in, in small amounts. The typical embezzler will take kind of 3 to 4% of a doctor's collections. So when you see a member of that million-dollar club, typically it was done over five or six years. 
Yeah, they try and keep it small where it's not noticeable. So, so tell us how you got into this space because it's a really interesting story. Well, I, I, I'd like to say that I had some kind of plan, you know, that I saw a big opportunity and I followed it. The, the, the truth is maybe a little, a little more happenstance than that. Um, I, I was previously an investigator for the military and in, a, in another industry it was banking. I, I quit my banking job because I got frustrated one day and I was sitting at home and uh, bored silly and the phone rang and it was a guy I knew from high school who was now a dad. I think my front desk person is stealing and I'm desperate. I have no one else I can call. And this guy caught me at the exact right moment. I was looking for a diversion and he was it. So I said, no problem. I'll go over to your practice tonight after work and we'll get to the bottom of what's going on. So I, I, I showed up at his practice. This is before practice is computerized 1989 to give the chronology. And he shoved a bunch of uh, ledger books at me. You know, it was the old pegboard system that Dennis used before practice management software. And I said to my friend, let's solve this a different way. Show me where she works. And he took me over to the, the, the person's workspace. And I started going through her desk. And at this point, my friend's kind of going bug-eyed. Like, you know, he wasn't even sure you could do this legally. Um, but I, I started going through her desk, which is legal. And what I found taped to the bottom of one of her drawers was her cheat book. So embezzlers have a need typically to keep track of what they're doing in, in the doctor's books so that they know what's real and what's fiction. And today it's more likely to be a spreadsheet. But in 1989, it was an old fashioned notebook. And that's what I found. And once I found that, the whole thing unraveled pretty quickly. And my, my friend was happy that I solved the problem. He wasn't happy that he'd been stolen from, but he um, asked me for another favor. He said, could you come back tomorrow morning because I'm going to fire her? And I kind of not like to do that alone. How much had she embezzled? Do you know? Yeah, it was about $35,000. And what was the tip off for him? I think, and I, I forget the exact details, but I think it was along the lines of somebody was in and paid with hundred dollar bills. And then at the end of the day, the $100 bills weren't there. And, uh, you know, he said to himself, there's no possible way those were given out in change. I mean, there's nothing really bigger than 100 that people carry. So, you know, how could they possibly have been given out in change and why aren't they here? It was, it was kind of like that. So how did the next day meeting go? Oh, it went, it, it was over and done in five minutes. She didn't uh, object. She didn't fight your argument. No, he said, he, he said, you know, I, I caught you scaling. I, I had sort of coached him on how to, what, what to say. And, and uh, the, the, the basic answer was, you know, I'm not asking you if you did it. I, I know you did it. What I want to know is why you did it. And uh, she, she gave some answer about, you know, her, uh, her, her kids needing something that she couldn't afford. And she just packed up her stuff and walked out. So, my, my friend thanked me. He promised to buy me dinner that I'm still waiting for. And um, he brought you know, that I, back up to him. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> no, we haven't really discussed it. And I, you know, I walked out the door thinking that was interesting, but I didn't really see a career possibility. Well, two weeks later, lightning struck. And the way that it struck was I had an appointment in my own dentist office for a filling. And I showed up at the appointed time. I put my hand on the door handle and I was about to go into the office. 
and I looked through the glass panel in the door and what I saw sitting at his front desk that gave me this jolt of electricity was the same woman I helped fire two weeks earlier. So she had gotten a job at my dentist's office. I spun around quickly and I hope she didn't see me. I sprinted to the nearest payphone because in those days there were such a thing as payphones. I called the practice. I used a little bit of trickery to get through to the doctor. And once he picked up the phone, I told him about what I knew about the woman at his front desk. And he panicked. And his next question to me was, well, what the hell do I do now? And about a sentence and a half later, he'd hired me. And that was my first client. Wow. A lot's changed since 1989. You know, the way we investigate is very different now because practices have computerized. And of course, we can we can do it at a distance, which you, you, you couldn't do with uh, with with the old uh, manual systems. Then uh, my company's grown a lot. I mean, it was just me then. We now have 25 people. Um, but the basics haven't changed. The you know, the rush that you get when that last piece falls into place and you see what somebody's doing um, is, is still there for me. So how many people, you work nationwide and Canada, correct? That's right. And actually we do, we do work in a couple of other countries as well, a little bit in Australia and uh, Ireland. How many calls do you guys or calls or outreaches do you guys get a day for people thinking that they might be, someone might be doing something stealing from them, if you will, uh, in their practice? Uh, the average is about three. Three. And of those three, how many is it usually happening? Two. Two. And so for the one that's not happening, they're just either paranoid or they're not doing their books properly or something? Um, uh, you know, some, sometimes they're, they're misreading the, the symptoms. And one, one of the challenges with embezzlement is that, you know, if you have staff who are incompetent or inefficient, um, a lot of times, some of the some of the markers will be the same as embezzlement. In other words, differentiating between somebody who's putting money in their pocket and somebody who just can't be bothered to collect it at all from the outside is a little bit of a challenge. Once we once we dig in and start work, we can differentiate those two fairly quickly. But you know, a lot of times doctors will call us with things that look a lot like embezzlement, and as we as we dive in, we 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 see maybe it's just staff who. You know, really, really don't care how well the. So what are the works. what are the red flags for embezzlement? Um, I'll divide them into two categories, and there are financial red flags and behavioral red flags. I'll talk about the behavioral ones first, maybe because they're a little easier to understand. And one of the classics is the person who doesn't want to take a vacation. Really? Yeah. If I'm a thief, when I'm on vacation, I can no longer control the way that information moves through the practice. Um, and I'll give you an example. This is from a, a case that happened very early in my career. It was a, um, a two-doctor periodontist practice. They lost about $600,000 from their office manager, whose name I, for some reason, I remember is Judy. And what happened was one weekend, Judy broke her leg skiing. So Monday morning, for the first time anybody could remember, Judy wasn't in the practice. And around uh, 11 a.m. on Monday morning, one of the receptionists came into the senior doctor's operatory. She took him out of the operatory, which in their culture was a big no-no. And she said, doctor, there's something weird going on here because I've gotten three very strange phone calls from patients this morning. And the doctor listened to her story and 
within five minutes, he called me and said, we need you. And what had Judy been there as she was every other Monday morning, those calls would have gone to Judy and they certainly never would have escalated to the doctor. So that's what can happen when, uh, when somebody goes on vacation and stealing. And it, it depends. What, was, what was the specifics on those calls? Um, they were all, they had all gotten their statements and there was something wrong with their statement. So the bill was too high or the bill was too low. No, it was the method of payment that was incorrect. So somebody came in, for example, and paid by check, but it showed up on their bill as a credit card payment. You know, it was, it was kind of along those lines. And so after that, after the third call within an hour and a half, the receptionist said, I, you know, something's not right here and I need to talk to the doctor. And that's what, that's what caused this whole thing to become unraveled. A lot of times, continuing with, with the behavioral kind of markers, a lot of times thieves like to be alone when they're doing their dirty stuff. You know, it's, first of all, it's, it's hard in a, in a busy office with the phone ringing and patients moving through the practice and stuff. It's hard to get enough concentration to steal properly. And secondly, the last thing I want is uh, my doctor poking her head into my workspace and say, oh, David, what are you doing? So thieves, a lot of times will work their schedules so that they have some alone time. You know, maybe they show up before everybody else. Maybe they stay around after to finish things up, or maybe they kind of slide quietly into the office on a weekend and, and, and do their thing. Another, another symptom is what I call a conspicuous display of honesty. In other words, people who are truly honest don't need to wave that around like a flag. When somebody makes a point of telling you or showing you how honest they are being, um, it means that they generally aren't honest. Cutting ethical corners. Thieves, thieves just think a little bit differently than everybody else. You know, you and I are walking down the street in your town and we see somebody's wallet fall out of their pants in front of us. Uh, probably without giving it a whole lot of thought, we're going to bend down, pick up the wallet, chase them and say, here, you, you drop this. And a thief might end up doing that too, but a couple of questions would go through their mind that might not go through yours. Like, I wonder if anybody else saw this wallet fall. Wonder how much money's in it. The final reaction might be the same, but they just process a little bit differently. Um, territoriality is a very common behavioral marker of embezzlement. So um, that's the behavior side. On the financial side, how can a practice owner sniff this out? And, and does a good bookkeeper, I maybe like a third-party bookkeeper, prevent this from happening? Prevent, no. Make it a little tougher, yes. So I'll, I'll let you in on one of the secrets of the universe. I'll tell you how, if you were a dentist and I were your office manager, how I would size up the problem. And the first question I'm going to ask, because you know we every dentist has practice management software. Their practice management software tracks fees and adjustments, and most important for this purpose, collections. So the first question I'm going to ask about Dr. Brannon is this. When the deposit is made each day, does he go to our practice management software, see how much money was collected, and make sure that it lined up with what was deposited? And my suggestion would be that there are two kinds of dentists. There are those who do that, and then there's the other 85%. Uh, if you're in the 85% who ignore this, then for, as your office manager, stealing is easy. I can just divert some of the deposit and I don't need to do anything exotic in your practice management software. I just, I just peel away some of the deposit and keep it. 
And to answer your question, Ross, if you have a bookkeeper, if they are printing reports from practice management software, and of course, assuming they know what to do with them and lining up the, that, that deposit versus collection amount, that, um, that will stop the easiest way to steal. So having a bookkeeper doesn't help you. Having a bookkeeper who does the right things does. Um, but if I'm working for you and I know your bookkeeper is doing that, or I know that you look at that, then where my thought process goes next is, okay, so what I need to do is I need to trick the practice management software into underreporting how much money was collected. And I'm not going to go into specifics here because uh, somewhere there's probably going to be an embezzler who tunes into this podcast to see what they, what they can learn. And I'm just not going to help them. Um, but what I will say is it's not that hard to make software under report collections. Is there, a, is, is there a staff position in the office that is the typical embezzler? No. I mean, it's, it's predominantly administrative as opposed to clinical. And, and clinical people can steal, but they just do it in different ways. Well, let's, um, we'll come to that in a second. But like, so is it usually an office manager or is it usually someone who's in charge of collections or is it? It uh, depends on, on kind of the office setup. Typically, the office manager is in the best position to steal because normally there is no oversight over, over their activities. In other words, most dentists exercise very little supervision over their office manager. So it's, it's the unsupervised employee who's in the best position. Normally, office manager could be financial coordinator, could be somebody in charge of insurance payment processing, um, could be a receptionist, could be a bookkeeper. Any, any of those people have the potential to steal. The way a bookkeeper steals unfolds a little bit differently than the way, for example, an office manager steals. So how I steal is a function of what's, you know, what's my kingdom? What are my responsibilities and, and where are my opportunities? So, uh, you know, when an office manager steals, most commonly it's a revenue theft. So they're stealing patient payments or insurance payments. When a bookkeeper steals, it tends to be more on the expense side because that's kind of where their their world is. So when you say bookkeeper stealing, that could be a third party bookkeeper who's not in the office that you someone you outsource. It, it, it could be an employee bookkeeper because a lot of practices have, you know, have a have an employee bookkeeper who comes in one day a week and does the books, for example. So it could be that person or if it's an outsourced uh, outsourced bookkeeper, it could be them as well. How does a clinician steal? Typically, well, it could be a couple of things. First of all, the one of the easy ones is to steal something tangible that they can sell. So it might be dental supplies. Um, you know, if you look on eBay, you'll see a lot of a lot of dental supplies for sale and dental equipment. You know, like hand pieces and stuff. And some of it's used, some of it is new in the in the package, and it's for sale on you know on eBay or Kijiji. Um, the other way people steal is the gold jar. So. Every dental operatory has a jar where, you know, restorations that come out of somebody's mouth go. So you have, you, you have your gold crown replaced, the crown goes in the gold jar. And then every once in a while, when it gets sufficiently full, the doctor takes it to a refiner and they, they kind of pay cash value for the gold. You know, if I'm working in a dental office and that, that gold jar is never locked up. So if I'm working in a dental office and I want to go to Vegas for the weekend and I don't have the money, you know, if I, scoop a handful of restorations out of the gold jar. I probably have $2,000 in, in, in refined value that, that I'll get for that. 
Sure seems like it's a lot more lucrative to be in the front office and embezzle than it would be as a clinician. It can be, but interestingly, I, I, I talked to somebody from one of the big refining companies and I asked them, you know, do you get ID from people who show up with, with dental gold and want cash for it? And they, they looked at me like I was crazy and said, no, Yeah, so there's but, uh, no tracking. Yeah, that's interesting. So how do you prevent embezzlement? You know, it's, it's, it's a, I don't want to say rampant, but it's a 70% chance it'll happen. How do you prevent it? Um, I'll start with hiring. And one thing we see is a whole lot of serial embezzlers. And I, I told you the story a few minutes about how the thief that I helped fire got hired by my dentist within two weeks. Uh, now, clearly, my dentist didn't phone my friend who I worked for the, the first time, the guy who promised me dinner. I, my dentist never phoned him because if if that phone call had happened, there's no way she would have been working. So pre-employment screening is, is not something that generally comes naturally to dentists. And I'll, I'll, I'll say that what, what compounds the problem is that they, they hate hiring people. I mean, I, I, I'll be speaking in a room of 200 people and I'll ask them, 200 dentists, and I'll ask them, okay, show of hands, how many of you like hiring staff? Nobody. So it's like any other job you hate, you take shortcuts. You know, my, my job that I hate is cleaning the garage. And my happy time is I'm cleaning the garage and my son walks by and he doesn't appear to be too busy. And I say, get in here, help me. Uh, that's my shortcut. I'll give you a really sobering statistic. 70 million Americans, which is one in four adults, has a criminal record. And yet probably 75 or 80% of dental practices do not do criminal record checks before they hire. Okay. So it, it starts with deficient hiring. Um, another And by hiring- the way... With staff shortages today in the dental world, people are probably hiring even easier with less scrutiny. Of course. You know, and people say to me, well, you know, I posted a job on Indeed and I only got one applicant. So what's the point of screening them? I said, well, and and my answer is, well, the point is they might be a child molester. And if they are and you knew that, do you still hire them? And somebody horrified says, of course not. Okay, so you need to know. Uh, Another thing that absolutely astounds me in the hiring process is the norm in dentistry is that people are not drug tested before they're hired. And when you look at how the rest of corporate America hires, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get almost any job without a drug test. Uh, I can't deliver, you know, I can't get a job delivering the crap people buy on Amazon without being drug tested. And yet I can work in a dental practice that has the power to prescribe. So if we do, Criminal background checks, drug testing, and, you know, references from past employers, those three simple things by itself would weed out, I'm guessing, a, a vast majority of embezzlers. Is that fair? That's, that's a good comment. Now, everybody has a first time, but there are a whole lot of serial embezzlers in circulation probably 30 to 40% of the cases we do involve somebody who's done it before and that that fact just wasn't recognized by their current employer. And and how often when you get done with this, because we talked about this earlier off air, um, is there a prosecution done? Because I mean, you, you gift wrap the file for the prosecutor. How often are they prosecuted? Almost a hundred percent of the time you will hear, you know, if you, if you go on, um, what I think of as dental social media, like like Facebook uh, groups for dentists and stuff like that, you'll hear people expressing frustration about how hard it is to prosecute. Most of the time, it's because they've gone at it the wrong way. 
And what they fail to recognize is that the police don't consider it to be their job to solve your crime for you. You have to do that once you solve this crime, which is, is a very technical one. Once you solve this crime, then the police will make sure that the law gets applied. And that's you, what you guys do. That's what we you, do. You solve the crime, you create a file, wrap a bow on it, and hand it over, and they're they're guilty. It's just a matter of we we very consistently get praise from law enforcement and prosecution on the quality of our reports. And they, you know, they say to us the same thing over and over. You know, I wish all the reports we got from forensic investigators were done to your standard. Wow. And yeah, we, we that is almost a universal comment. And it makes their job easy because, you know, the two challenges in a forensic investigation are, first of all, to find and understand what happened. And second, to communicate it to lay people, because our our audience for that report is not the dentist who's our client or their attorney. It's a judge. And all that judge understands about dentistry is what they have gleaned from their their semi-annual visits to their own dentist. So you really have to gear it down to something that somebody who knows nothing about dentistry um, and, and sometimes even very little about how kind of business finances operate can understand what happened. Yeah, that, that, may, that makes a lot of sense. So when so you do that, I, prosecution will happen. I mean, the justice system never moves quickly, but it will happen. So if we screen properly, it's going to re- dramatically reduce the probability of embezzlement happening. What are some ways, if I own a dental practice today, and maybe I'm suspicious, maybe I'm not suspicious, how do I sniff it out? I'm, I'm going to give you three things that I want you to do each month. And if you do these things and, and something is wrong, then the next step is to call for help. The first thing is at the end of each day, you need to look at your day end report from your practice management software. Ideally, Ross, you print it yourself. As soon as somebody prints a report and hands it to you, you, you have abdicated control over the parameters used to build that report, and it's relatively easy to hide things. So I want you to print your own report. And if you don't know how to do that in your practice management software, there's somebody around who will teach you. Every software company has trainers. You know, there are lots of sources of information for how to do that. So I want you to print your own report. Now, the idea of trying to line up today's bank deposit with today's collections is something I think that's a waste of time. I, I have a better answer for that in a minute. But at the end of the day, I want you to look at the report. Does it make sense? Are all the patients who I saw today on that report? When I look at my hygienist's work, if the protocol in my office is that people should get an annual uh, update to their radiography, you know, and the hygienist saw 12 patients today, did I see radiography for about six of them? Okay, just kind of basic logic stuff like that. That's what I want you to look at today before you go home. Don't do it tomorrow. Don't do it next week because that's meaningless. Do it today. That's your daily exercise. On a monthly basis, I want you to do two things. The first thing I want you to do is what I call articulation. And when dentists hear the word articulation, what the, the sense that they use it is that uh, the, the mandible and the maxilla should, should have a certain relationship with each other. What I'm talking about with articulation is similar, but just applied to a financial concept. So if your office was open 20 days this month, and in your left hand, you have 20 individual day-end reports from each of those days, and in your right hand, you have a month-end report from your software, the total for fees, collections, and adjustments on the 20 day-end reports should add up exactly to the month-end report. 
If they don't, then somebody came in after hours and did stuff to your software. In other words, there's something that happened that you don't know about yet. And at that point, you really want to know. Okay, so the articulation calculation. And the other one is on a monthly basis, I want you to line up your bank deposits for your collections. And they will never add up exactly because there are some items where they're captured on a different day in practice management software than your bank. So let's say, for example, that on the last day of the month, somebody pays by credit card. Your software, your practice management software captures that as a payment this month, but that money won't hit your bank account till a day or two into the next month. Okay. So that's, that will cause the collections and the deposits to be a little bit different from each other. And what I'd suggest to, if, if you're a dentist is calculate that difference for the month and plot it on a graph and do that every month. If what we're talking about is timing only, then if you did a regression line, if you're a little mathematical, the slope of it will be pretty close to zero. If what you're, if what's causing these differences is leakage, then the slope won't be zero anymore. So if you want a, a relatively straightforward way to check one against the other, that's how you do it. Well, and that takes effort and time and sometimes not, not much actually. You, if, you you can do that in thirty minutes, but people can be lazy all of us to some degree. And many times people don't like to deal with that. Um, what you'll find, what I found is certain practice owners who have more of a business mindset don't mind that. And certain practice owners who don't have a business mindset just want to delegate that. And Well, and let's talk about the good news. I mean, the two calculations I gave you, the articulation and the, the, the collections versus deposits are mechanical. There's nothing about those that requires a DDS or a DMD after your name to do them. Right. Um, now, it, it can't be your staff because that's kind of like asking the fox if he'd mind holding the keys to the hen house for an hour while you go to the gym. But it could be that external bookkeeper, maybe a spouse. Um, if you had a, have a kid in college who's trying to earn money for beer, you know, any of those people could do that month end stuff. It does not have to be the dentist but it does have to be done. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, all right. So as we wind down here, give us, you know, a couple must do tips, which we talked about a few already, but like to, pre- whether it's to prevent or to check on everything, wh- what's a little, some low hanging fruit, like, Hey, you got to do this. This is your, this is the golden goose. You got to protect it. What do you, what, what does someone have to do? The, the first thing I'm going to say, which is which is a slight digression, is embezzlement investigation is not a DIY project. If you have suspicions, then you need to call somebody and it should be an expert. And let's not make the mistake of, of confusing somebody who knows 20% more than you do with an expert. In other words, sometimes when people have embezzlement concerns, for example, they will reach out to a practice management software or maybe their CPA or maybe their IT guy. And none of these people have an investigative background or um, the right forensic mindset probably to, to dig in and see what happened. And the danger is that they make one of the cardinal mistakes people make is to alert the person they suspect to the fact that they're under suspicion because that person may retaliate or um, try to destroy evidence. And, and that never ends well for the dentist. So if, if you're in that spot, you need to call somebody who's an expert in dental forensic investigation. And 
we're the biggest firm. We also have several competitors, so you have some choices there. In terms of things that the dentist should do, we already talked about hiring. We talked about kind of financial oversight in terms of what happens daily and monthly. Um, a few other things I'll, I'll give you to think about. One is get to know your staff. You know, it's interesting when I watch what happens at lunchtime in a, in, in a dental practice. And typically the doctor will go in their private office, they'll close the door and, you know, they'll, you know, surf porn on the internet or whatever they do. And the staff will all go in the break room. And then an hour later, everybody kind of gets back together and they see patients again. And what I say to dentists is once a week, twice a week, have lunch with your staff. You know, if you, if you haven't traditionally done this and you're going to start, they'll find it a little weird and you might have to bribe them with food to kind of get them to go along with it. But the break room is a place where the hierarchy tends to get left at the door and people just relate to each other as people. And that's where you'll find out, you know, who's, um, you know, that you've got one of your staff who, uh, you know, they've got a house that they've got an offering on, but they've been turned down by three lenders and they're really not sure they can do it. Okay, dangerous sign. You know, you'll find out, you know, who's struggling to pay for their kid's college education. Not that money problems are an automatic on-ramp to embezzlement, but you get to know your staff and you get to know who's got issues in their lives and, and you know, who's behind the eight ball financially and things like that. So that's, that's one suggestion I'd make. Um, the other suggestion is don't ignore the symptoms. Most of the dentists who call me have waited six months to do it. In other words, they had suspicions for a long time and they've kind of put their head in the sand and hope that when they remove it from the sand, you know, that, that um, the sun's shining a little brighter and it never is. No, nobody stops embezzling. Um, every thief I've ever seen stole almost to the last day they worked in a practice. So, you know, the, the I'll just ignore the problem and hope it gets better is, is pretty forlorn. So don't ignore the symptoms. Those, those would be the other pieces of advice I'd give somebody. So if someone is concerned and they wanted to reach out to Prosperident, how do they get in touch with you guys? A couple of good ways to do it. The, the first is we have a toll-free number, which is 888-398-2327. Say it again. 888-398-2327. Or they can go on our website, which is called prosperident.com. And uh, there's a, there's a uh, menu item called Contact Us. There's a little form they fill in. And normally between about 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern, they'll hear back from us within two hours. That's great. Uh, so those are, the, those are the two ways to do it. Uh, when you contact us, please leave a confidential phone number, like a cell phone number, ideally, that we can get back to you on. And we, we will often respond by text message. And a confidential email because we of course don't want to end up calling your office. Yeah, that would not be good. You don't want them no. to get off. Um, and sometimes doctors do it by mistake. Our, our protocol is to check the phone number before we call it and just make sure it's not an office number, but yeah, it's, it's good to leave us your cell phone number and then, you know, then we can have a discreet conversation. This has been a fascinating conversation, not not a discreet one, but, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot today. And, uh, David, I really appreciate your time on the show. Well, you uh, you, you asked great questions, and uh, I, I really enjoyed our chat. Well, thanks again, sir. You've been listening to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan. 
This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannan, visit rossbrannan.com. Ross Brandon is a registered representative of Coastal Equities, Inc., and investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc., and securities are offered through Coastal Equities, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.